Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 13. Previously on Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie Bennet is visiting her best friend Charlotte and her new husband Mr. Collins in Kent with his patroness Lady Catherine de Bourgh and who should be there but her two nephews Colonel Fitzwilliam and Mr. Darcy and so Elizabeth spends a little bit more time with them she's having a good time kind of I mean not really but you know whatever she's on vacation it's fine and then she learns that Mr. Darcy himself has specifically worked to separate Mr. Bingley from her sister Jane, and that makes her quite obviously and angry and very, very mad. And while she is ruminating on how mad that makes her, he shows up and tells her that he ardently admires and loves her. And that he would like to marry her. And she can't even, basically. And so with her can't even, she screams at him. She yells. I mean, I don't know that she's actually screaming. Literally. But they get into a big argument. She is super mad at him. He picked the worst possible moment to come at her. Because if she wasn't so actively angry, I mean, she still probably would have said no. But maybe not quite so vehemently. But the fact that he came right as she was sitting there, like, stewing in her anger about him to the point where she didn't go to tea um, at Rosings was chef's kiss. Perfect timing for him to show up and be like, and, you know, ask her to marry him while she is in peak hatred mode. So that happened. And she said no. They had a big argument. She told him all of his faults and things that were wrong with him. Then last chapter, we got his letter where he explained himself and he explained about how he didn't think that Jane actually loved Bingley and that's why she, he tried to separate her from his friend. And then we also learned the actual history of him and Mr. Wickham. And now in this chapter, chapter 13, we are going to get Elizabeth's sort of thought process as she goes through reading the letter and how she feels about it now that she's learned all of this information. So it's really well done. A very spectacular work, a really good chapter of really getting through into Elizabeth's thought process and how reading the letter like went in her mind. And I think it's really well done and it's great and I love it. So we'll be getting into that. But before then, announcements, announcements, announcements. I really don't have much this week. I'm not sure of any real new information about Jane Austen related materials. Specifically. Except for that Rational Creatures is still going. There was another new episode, as there will be every week. I believe they're, from what I've seen, that they're about halfway done with season two. Which will finish up the story. If you have not yet watched Rational Creatures on YouTube, I'm keeping to, I'm going to continue to keep giving them, I can speak sometimes, um, free ad time. I am, have no relationship with them. I am not connected in any way. I am just 
a fan and enjoying it. And you guys should all go watch it too. Free on YouTube. Go do it. Um, yes, I'm very excited about it. Should be a lot of fun. And I can't wait to see how it all sort of wraps up in a nice little bow. So that should be fun. And of course, the other thing we talked about a little bit last week was Hocus Pocus 2. Make sure you go watch that. Also, don't have any affiliation. I just really love Hocus Pocus and Hocus Pocus 2 and a lot of Disney-related things. So, go do that, too. I will most likely, as I said, do eventually do an episode a little bit closer to Halloween, maybe. As part of the spooky season, we shall see, but love it. That is around. And, of course, the Netherfield Girls is still in the ether somewhere. I don't have any new information about it. Yeah, not much of an update to go with this week, but those are the things sort of floating in the air currently. And I hope that there will be other new remakes of things, or remakes, adaptations, I suppose is a better word for that. I am always up for new adaptations. Even if I hate them, I enjoy them in my hatred. <laughs> like the newest Persuasion 2022. I'm not mad that they made it. I think it was horrible and I wish they'd done a better job, but I'm still... Happy that it came out. I don't know. I have conflicting emotions. It's just the way it is. Anywho, getting back into it, here we go with chapter 13. All right, so here we are getting into it. Elizabeth has read the letter. It starts off with that if when she got the letter, she didn't expect it to contain a renewal of his offers, she had formed no expectation at all of its contents, which I think really just says she has no idea what, what he could possibly be saying in this letter. Well, I think that's not completely fair. I think she could expect that it had something to do with his offers, even if it's not a renewal of them. But she has no real expectation of how he can think that he's going to sort of excuse himself. Like, what sort of, what he's going to say to explain himself. She hasn't figured that part out yet. Um, so she's not really sure. But she's still really, really eager to go through them. And there's this great, I don't know, phrase that she uses. That um, as she went through reading the letter, she had that she had a contra contrariety of emotion. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word right. It's C O N T A R A R I E T Y. Contrariety is what I'm, and it says a discordance or inconsistency of emotion. So lots of emotions basically, but I just love that contrariety of emotion is not a phrase that's. I've ever heard before used. I don't know if that word contrariety was just not, it just doesn't seem to be a word that's used anymore, maybe, or at least I have not seen it used, but I really like it. I assume it's from contrary. So, um, that's where like inconsistent. So contrary emotions, a lot of different emotions. It's a discordance or inconsistency. I don't know. I get into some of that language and I really enjoy that particular phrase to say 
that she had all sorts of very different emotions as she read through the letter, which makes sense. And it says her feelings as she read were scarcely to be defined. So there's so many emotions and so powerfully in all in different directions that she can't even explain what she's feeling. So first she's amazed that he believed any apology to be in his power and persuaded that he could have no explanation, which would, which a just sense of shame would not conceal. So with a strong prejudice against everything he might say, she began his account of what had happened at Netherfield. And here's some more great, I just love the language she actually uses here. It says she read with an eagerness which hardly left her power of comprehension and from impatience of knowing what the next sentence might bring was incapable of attending to the sense of the one before her. Which I just think is such a great description of when you're reading something really quickly and you're trying to get to the end. I mean, I've done this where you kind of skim through, you're looking for the important parts to try and like get them, get the big meaning without like having to read every word is that's, that's at least how I'm sort of accepting this and now I'm usually doing this when I'm reading like I don't know um I'm thinking of like articles like of research and things where you're kind of skimming through looking for the pertinent points not necessarily reading every single word now in that sense when you do actually get to the information you do eventually have to like go back and read the whole thing but I do think it helps sometimes to like get get the important bits before you go back and read word for word and that's kind of what I feel like Elizabeth is doing here, where she's sort of skimming for the key points, going through really, really quickly, looking for, like, things that stand out to her. And then she's going to go back and actually read the whole letter again, which I think is really, which is a good way, or at least it's a way I like to read academic papers. Um, I don't know that it's actually the best way, but it works for me. But anyway, that's how I'm imagining Elizabeth is doing this, and that's what it sounds like is happening to me that she's so impatient to get to like the meat that she's not really reading all of it and her comprehension is a little sus um so first she's reading the part about bingley and jane and it doesn't she is not impressed let's just say the fact that she doesn't he doesn't think that jane is in love with bingley she thinks she instantly resolved to be false. Um, and the account of the real, the worst objections to the match made her too angry to have any wish of doing him justice. So his real thing, his most important piece is that he doesn't believe that Jane loved Bingley, right? That's what he said in his letter. Elizabeth is saying here, she immediately just like, dumb, stupid. No, that's not true. That can't be true. Doesn't believe it at all. And then the other stuff about how improper her family behaves makes her mad. So she doesn't even really think about it. Um, so she's too angry to really comprehend and think about that. Um, it's, he, it says he expressed no regret for what he had done, which satisfied her. Because she didn't want to think well of him. And so she doesn't need to hear him express regret. And his style was not penitent, but haughty. It was all pride and insolence. So the Jane and Bingley stuff, not, not helping his case too much yet. And so she kind of, I, again, the way I'm reading this is she's sort of blowing through the Jane and Bingley stuff, being like, BS, not buying it, and it's not helping his case. But then she gets to the Wickham stuff, and that is a very different conversation. 
It says she reads this part with somewhat clearer attention. And the events that he relates, which are, if true, they must overthrow every cherished opinion of his worth, and which bore so alarming an affinity to his own history of himself, her feelings were yet more acutely painful and more difficult of definition. So even more emotions here. Astonishment, apprehension, and even horror oppressed her. She wants to discredit it entirely. Um, it says even that she's repeatedly exclaiming, this must be false, this cannot be, this must be the grossest falsehood. And so the first read-through, she, although scarcely knowing anything about what she read, especially in the last page or two, hastily puts it away, protesting she would never regard it and that she would never look at it again. And in this perturbed state of mind, with thoughts that could rest on nothing, she walked on. And that won't do. Half a minute later, she's reading it again. <laughs> so she reads it the first time. She's like, oh, no, this is all trash. And then she opens it up again. Um... And she's reading the Wickham stuff again. And she commanded herself to examine it and the meaning of every sentence. And she's going through and realizing that things are very similar to the way that Mr. Wickham had expressed them to her. And realizing that there has to be some sort of duplicity on one side or the other. And for a few minutes, it says for a few moments, she flattered herself that her wishes did not err. But then she read and reread with the closest attention the particular in particulars immediately following of Wickham's res resigning all pretensions to the living, as if of his receiving the money instead. She put down the letter, weighed every circumstance with what she meant to be impartiality, deliberated on the probability of each statement, but with little success. On both sides, it was only assertion. Again, she read on, but every line proved more clearly that the affair which she had believed it impossible that any contrivance could so represent as to render Mr. Darcy's conduct in any less than infamous was capable of a turn which must make him entirely blameless throughout the whole. So she's starting, so this is where it's, I think the writing is so good because it's starting to show that Elizabeth goes in very prejudiced against Darcy and the first time she reads through she's still so angry with him. That she just completely disregards everything. And especially the Jane and Bingley stuff. She's like, come on. And then she barely threw through the Wickham stuff. And that also makes her angry. And she's like, no, 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 this can't be true. And she's folds up the letter. She's like, no, I'm not even going to look at this. And she walks for like 30 seconds. And then's like, no, oh, crap. And she opens it. And she reads it again. And she's starting to get worried. She's like, no, this can't be true. No, the Wickham wouldn't have lied to me. I can't be this, like, wrong about it. So, no, 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 that's not happening. That's not true. No, that can't happen. And then reading through and seeing these sort of very similar incidents, but with now Darcy being completely blameless in the whole situation. And she's kind of having this moment of, like, crap, maybe I was wrong. So... She talks about how, then, that the extravagance and general profligacy, which he scrupled not to lay it to Wickham's charge, exceedingly shocked her. The more so as she could bring no proof of its injustice. So I think this is really interesting. So when we're talking about profligacy, that word, according to my annotated version, is wastefulness or immorality and licentiousness. So it's not just that he, 
when I think profligate, in my mind, at least from a, from a more modern, I was thinking more like wasting money. It's kind of the meaning that came to mind for me of like being a spendthrift, of, you know, not saving your money, of spending it all on crap you don't need, and like always being in debt is kind of where I thought was profligacy. But this idea that it's also connected to immorality and licentiousness actually works a little bit better with her being shocked, right? Um, so this idea that Wickham is just generally immoral and what I think that means from the letter and what I would assume Elizabeth is thinking is things like gambling and possibly, I don't know if Elizabeth would know these things, but like, um, going to prostitutes or, you know, other sort of shameful behavior is what I'm thinking was they're talking about immorality and licentiousness is what this word means. And the fact that she can't think of anything to prove it wrong, which I think is really interesting. Cause she really liked this guy. She was like, she was not saying that she was in love with him because when he went after Miss King, she wasn't all that mad about it. But I mean, in her head, she was thinking that he was a really good friend and she enjoyed spending time with him. So then to go back and think like, I can't think of anything to prove to me that his morals are better than what this letter says. It's something that I think really throws her for a loop that she can't think of any signs that he's really a good person. She can't figure that out, which I think is a really interesting statement about the whole situation. So she's thinking about the fact that how I can't prove that this claim that Darcy is claiming that he is a licentious person. I can't prove that wrong. I guess Darcy said profligate. You know, I haven't known him that long. I have never heard of any of him at all until he joined the militia, which is not that long ago, right? They came to town right about the same time as Bingley and Darcy did. So not very long. Um, we don't know anything about his history except for what he's told us himself. Um, he didn't like nobody in town knew him except for the one person who brought him in. Um, and even that person didn't know him well. They were just sort of acquaintances and it kind of happened by chance. And she realizes that it was his countenance, voice and manner, which had established him at once in the possession of every virtue. She tried to recollect some instance of goodness, some distinguished trait of integrity and benevolence that might rescue him from the attacks of Mr. Darcy, or at least by the predominance of virtue atone for those casual errors under which she would endeavor to class what Mr. Darcy had described as the idleness and vice of many years continuance. But no such recollect recollection befriended her. She could see him instantly before her in every charm of air and address, but she could remember no more substantial good than the general approbation of the neighborhood and the regard which his social powers had gained him in the mess. So she's realizing she can't think of any like signs of real goodness. He's just friendly and charming and people like spending time with him, but she knows no real evidence that he's a good moral person. And that I think is interesting that it's, she's able to make that distinction now where in the past she wasn't, she was seeing a charming person and assuming them good. And then she saw Darcy who was not a charming person and saying that he must be bad. And she is now starting to rethink that and say that just because he's charming doesn't mean he's automatically a good person. 
And that is sort of a revelation to her, which I think is interesting. And I think is one of the morals that Jane Austen likes to tell us in her books. Because this is a continual theme that you have where you see the nice, charming guy and you're supposed to be automatically nervous. I'm watching you because I don't trust you because you're too charming. It's kind of that, like somebody who's a little too charming, too ingratiating of himself. Red flag. And I think Jane Austen does that a lot. And we're seeing Lizzie here realize that red flag in real time in the novel. So Jane Austen is sort of having Lizzie explain to us how that's a red flag. Um, which I think is interesting. It's good. And so she continues to read the letter and she gets to the part about the Miss Darcy situation where Wickham tried to elope with her, tried to seduce her essentially. And she realizes that she has some confirmation from the conversation she had with Carl Fitzwilliam a couple chapters ago. So that was the time where it was a little thing at the time where she was talking about the fact that Colonel Fitzwilliam is sort of a joint guardian of Miss Darcy with her brother, Mr. Darcy. And Elizabeth made a little joke like, oh, does she give you a lot of trouble? You know, girls of that age can be trying or whatever. Um, and he had a reaction that was way bigger than Elizabeth expected for her little joke. She realized that she had sort of touched a nerve. She didn't know how. But she knew she had and she quickly kind of assured him, oh, I've never heard anything bad about her. Don't worry about it. Um, but she kind of just took note of that in the back of her mind. Like, I wonder what happened. Like, that seemed like there was a story there. And she is now lining that up to what Mr. Darcy is saying in the letter, that the reason that Colonel Fitzwilliam might have been sort of anxious and upset by her saying something like that is that he is relating that back to oh, has Wickham told somebody about the elopement? Is this something that is more generally known? Is this something we need to be worried about, basically? And she's taking his reaction to be sort of a confirmation that something happened with Miss Darcy, and it would line up with this story about Wickham. So that seems to her to be a sort of confirmation that, yeah, something like this must have happened. And then she gets to the part of the letter where Darcy is saying that she can go, you know, talk to Colonel Fitzwilliam if she doesn't trust him, Mr. Darcy, to be telling her the truth. And at first she thinks she will, but then she realizes that it'd be super duper awkward. Um, and so she doesn't want to do it. And then she's also pretty convinced that Mr. Darcy wouldn't tell her to do that if he wasn't sure that his cousin would back him up. Um, so she decides not to do that. which I think could be read in a couple different ways. I, I could see a way where this is sort of manipulative on Darcy's part, because he would assume, I think, I think he could assume that she's not going to want to go do, have this conversation with Colonel Fitzwilliam, because it would be super weird and awkward. Um, and sort of, and not, not acceptable, really. Like, you can't go ask some guy that you've known for a couple weeks that you're not, like, I mean, you're friends with, but not, like, a year's continuance or anything. Like, hey, by the way, um, did your cousin, who you're, like, partially guardian of, the guardian of, did she almost elope with Wickham? Did she almost, like, get ruined? Like, that's not a conversation you want to start. So I think it is a little... I think we're supposed to see it, and I think Elizabeth is reading it as a good good faith offer by Darcy like I want to make sure that you believe what I'm saying and so I'm going to tell you this 
but I can definitely see how it might be a bit could be sort of manipulative to do that because he would know that she probably wouldn't be able to bring that conversation up or that his cousin would like even if he could even if this is all true like I don't know it just feels a little off to me because I don't think there's any situation where Elizabeth would have actually gone to talk to Colonel Fitzwilliam about this I don't know I might be reading it wrong but that's how I see it so it feels a little off to me So then she starts thinking about Wickham some more. And she is now struck with the impropriety of such communication to a stranger. So she thinks about the fact that she heard this whole story basically the first day she met him, the second time she sees him, right? So she meets him out and they barely exchange names out on the street. And then she sees him the next time at a party at her aunt's house, at Mrs. Phillips's house. And so that second time she sees him, the, the first time she's ever had like a real conversation with him, he's already telling her like this, his tragic life story. And she realizes that that is completely improper to be ha telling a story like that to a complete stranger it is crazy. And she wonders how she didn't notice that the first time. It's because she was too busy looking at how pretty he was and how charming he was. I don't know. But she realizes now she's calling it indelicate and inconsistent with his professions of his contact. So that's the part where he's saying that like, he would never say anything bad about the son because he had so much respect for the father. And yet at the same time, he's completely throwing the son under the bus. So like, that doesn't make any sense. And how he's boasting that, you know, he's not going to be taken out of town or what does it say? He boasted of having no fear of seeing Mr. Darcy, that Mr. Darcy might leave the country but that he should stand his ground, yet he had avoided the Netherfield Ball the very next week. So again, an inconsistent thing that he's saying, that he has no fear of seeing Darcy, but then it's clear that he does, and he chooses not to go see Darcy. And that as soon as Darcy left town, the whole Netherfield party, he tells, he tells everybody his story. So before that, it was a secret that just, like, Elizabeth knew. And we don't know, maybe he told a few other people. But it was a secret, like it was something he was telling in secret to a few people, maybe just Lizzie. Lizzie wouldn't have any way really to know that. But as soon as Darcy's out of town and there's nobody to contradict him, he's telling everybody. And now it's suddenly something everybody knows is and is gossiping about, which considering he said again that he didn't want to defame the name of the son because of how much he respects the father, doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's that. And so then she starts to think, like, is there anything that I can think of for, well, actually, before she gets into that, then she talks, thinks about Miss King, who before she hadn't really thought about um, much in any way, but now she's realizing that it seems very hatefully mercenary, which um everybody else kind of saw like that's what mrs gardner thought at the beginning and elizabeth sort of was defending wickham in the situation and now she's realizing that there's no real way to defend it and she really was blind to be trying to do so um and then she's thinking that he must have been like deceived with regard to her fortune to be paying any attention to her at the first at first 
And, you know, that does actually make some sort of sense that he would have no way of knowing what her dowry was. Again, her family is actually really well off. The problem is that she's not actually going to inherit any of it and neither are any of her sisters. But Wickham wouldn't necessarily know that right off the bat, that she doesn't have much of a dowry and that she's not going to inherit anything from her father. If he's just coming into the neighborhood, she is well-dressed and from one of the you know one of the wealthiest families in the area there's no reason for Wickham to necessarily have known that so the fact that he comes on real strong at first and then later sort of backs off makes sense with him not realizing her actual financial situation at first and then figuring it out and then you know moving on to somebody else and so that makes a lot of sense of his behavior when she's sort of actually thinking about that and so now she's kind of going back and thinking about Mr. Darcy and how, you know, Bingley had said that Darcy was completely blameless. Um, how she had spent a good amount of time with Mr. Darcy recently. And nothing that she saw about him portrayed him to be unprincipled or unjust. Or anything that spoke of him as being irre irreligious or immoral. Um, or of having irreligious or immoral habits. That among his own connections, he was esteemed and valued, and that even Wickham had allowed him merit as a brother. And that he speaks affectionately of his sister, so he must have some amiable feelings. And she's thinking that had his actions been what Wickham represented them, so gross a violation of everything right could hardly have been concealed from the world, and the friendship between a person capable of it and such an amiable man as Mr. Bingley was incomprehensible. So she's now sort of looking at Darcy with his acquaintances. And one of his defenses is that if he was so horrible, Bingley wouldn't be his friend. Um, which I think is an interesting justification for him. And, but through all these ruminations, she has come to the conclusion that she was completely wrong and she thinks of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling that she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, and absurd. How despicably have I acted, she cried. I, who have prided myself on my discernment, I, who have valued myself on my abilities, who have often disdained the generous candor of my sister, meaning Jane, and gratified my vanity in useless or blamable distrust. How humiliating is this discovery! Yet how just a humiliation. Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind, but vanity, not love, has been my folly. Pleased with the preference of one and offended by the neglect of the other, on the very beginning of our acquaintance, I have courted prepossession and ignorance and driven reason away where either were concerned. Till this moment, I never knew myself. Which is very dramatic, Lizzie. Good job. But I love it. Um, so she's going through and saying basically that, you know, I was completely wrong to trust Wickham and blames it on her vanity of Wickham was obviously taken by me from the beginning. He started flirting with me immediately. He noticed me right away. He gave me lots of attention, made it very clear he liked me and therefore I liked him back. Versus Darcy insulted me the first time I met him, refused to dance with me, called me not tolerum, not, you know, not enough to tempt him to dance. Um, 
She's tolerable, I suppose, but not handsome enough to tempt me, I think is exactly what he said. Um, so he insulted her right away, and she hated him back for it, and Wickham flattered her, so she liked him back. And how she, her, so she thinks that she's being impartial and judging people fairly, and she's realizing that maybe she's not, because her vanity has made her blind to some things. And so then she goes back to the Jane and Bingley situation. So she has gone through this whole change of heart on the Wickham stuff, where she now believes Darcy about the Wickham things. And then she goes back to the first half and the Jane and Bingley stuff, and she's like, kind of crap. If he was completely truthful about that, maybe I do have to give him more credit about the Jane and Bingley stuff. If you remember, the first time she read through that, she just completely was like, no way. And completely blew it off. But now she's like, well, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it is true. And she says, how could she deny that credit to his assertions in one instance, which she had been obliged to give in the other? So, essentially, if she's going to believe him with what she he said about Wickham, then she has to give him credit and reread the stuff about Jane. So she's again reading that he completely doesn't believe that Jane loves Bingley. And she can't forget that that's basically the same thing that Charlotte had told her. Um, that Jane was not wearing her heart on her sleeve enough. And she's looking back with a less prejudiced eye and feeling like, you know what, I could tell Jane was really into him, but I can now, trying to be objective, see that if you didn't know Jane well, it might be hard to tell. Because um, she felt that Jane's feelings, though fervent, were little displayed and that there was a constant complacency in her air and manner, not often united with great sensibility. Which uh, is a bit of a burn on Jane. But I want to be very clear that sensibility at this time is meaning strong feelings, not like sensible the way we use the word now, meaning like smarts, which is something when we get into sense and sensibility, we'll have to talk about a lot that the word sensibility means something very different than how we use the word today. So when she says that she does not often like because when I first read this, I thought this was a big burn on Jane for like her where I was reading it as like with great sensibility and reading sensibility as like smarts so I was reading that she had a complacency in her air and merit, and merit not often united with great sense is how I would have read it to mean because sense and sensibility would have meant like the same thing to me but realizing as going reading through Jane Austen much more than when I was 16 and first reading Pride and Prejudice and this was the first Jane Austen book I ever read realizing that sensibility is more about the feelings than the sense um the sentence makes a lot more sense to me because she's saying that her her sort of outward expressions of emotion is so lackluster that it would not often be that someone would look like that and have a lot of sensibility or a lot of great deep feelings Then she gets to the part where Darcy talks about how awful her family is, and this is, and she feels now that this is mortifying yet merited. And she's very much in shame about her family. And I mean, this is his strongest stuff for her because she 
if you remember back in the Netherfield Ball, very much agreed with Darcy that her family was out to embarrass her. She finds their behavior bad as well. And she remembers the Netherfield Ball and how embarrassing and badly behaved her family was. And so she sort of now is like, yeah, I agree with you about that part. Um, and so now she's thinking that Jane's disappointment is the fact is actually the work of how horribly behaved her family is. And she felt depressed beyond anything she had ever known before. So she's going very emo. She is super down and depressed now. Everything is horrible. And she wanders around for two hours reading the letter. Um, it says, giving way to every variety of thought, reconsidering events, determining probabilities, and recon reconciling herself as well as she could to a change so sudden and so important. Fatigue and a recollection of her long absence made her at length return home. And she entered the house with a wish of appearing cheerful as usual and the resolution of repressing such reflections as much make her unfit for conversation. So she's trying to hide all her thoughts and feelings so that she's not asked about it. Basically, she's trying to be act like nothing has happened and everything's fine. I very much see the meme of the dog sitting there in the room full of fire. And it's like, everything's fine. No, there are no problems here. I don't know what you're talking about. That's why I see Lizzie right now. She is just trying to hide it all and everything's fine and she doesn't want to talk about it. That is when she finds out that the two gentlemen from Rosings had called while she was gone to take their leave since they're both leaving town now. They're going back to London, I assume. Um, Mr. Darcy only stayed for a couple minutes, but Colonel Fitzwilliam had been sitting with them for at least half an hour hoping for her return and almost resol resolving to walk after her till she could be found. Elizabeth could just affect concern in, concern in missing him. She really rejoiced in edit. Colonel Fitzwilliam was no longer an object. She could think only of her letter. So that is how this chapter ends. Which I think is interesting here that Mr. Darcy comes and says goodbye with just like kind of the barest amount of civility. But Colonel Fitzwilliam is making a point of trying to see Lizzie again. And again, I think there are multiple interpretations you could take from this. Colonel Fitzwilliam could just, you know be good friends with Lizzie and really want to see her again. That is possible. It does seem like Colonel Fitzwilliam really liked Lizzie. So the fact that he just really does want to say goodbye to her could be true. It could also be that Darcy told him about the whole situation with Lizzie and that he wrote to her and told her and wants Fitzwilliam to confirm these things for him. That is also possible. Um, I don't know, honestly, which one is more likely. I guess my reading of it has always more been that he just is rarely friendly and really wants to see Lizzie. And so he is being extra friendly and to stay. But I think there is a way to read it that he is staying because Darcy told him to. And because Darcy made a point of asking him to confirm these things if Lizzie asks about them. Um, especially since in the letter, Darcy says that he will try to give her the letter early enough that she will have time to talk to Colonel Fitzwilliam before they leave town. So I think that that is also a possible reading. It's just not the way I, I have usually thought about it. But I do think that it is a reasonable reading as well. That Colonel Fitzwilliam knows about the situation and is there for that reason. So that's my thoughts on that chapter. Oh, which is really, I mean, if you think about this entire chapter is just Lizzie thinking about the letter that she read last chapter. Um, and so, like, it's one of those things where I think... 
people will say that there nothing happens in this chapter. She's just thinking about things. But that's what's so important about this book is like we're in Lizzie's head the whole time. We're listening to her. And this chapter is so great because it's Lizzie realizing that she is an untrustworthy narrator. And so this is kind of the turning point in that sense. So this entire book so far, I have been sort of spoiling the things because I've been pointing out as we read all the things that Lizzie's getting wrong and misinterpreting. But if you're reading this for the first time, I think up until this chapter, really, maybe last chapter with the letter, but this about this time, you're sort of on Lizzie's side, I guess, until the proposal. I'm going to go back two chapters to the proposal until the proposal happens. You're pretty much the on a first read through on Lizzie's side in Lizzie's head, agreeing with her interpretations of things, agreeing with her, like everything seems rational, right? Her disagreement with Charlotte about Jane wearing her heart on her sleeve. I'm totally on Lizzie's side on that argument. The idea that Darcy is a jerk, kind of on board with that as well. He's acting like one. Now, you do know that Darcy is starting to like her because we get a little time in Darcy's head. So you see that part. But a lot of it, like, you're just kind of going along with Lizzie and really liking Wickham and really hating Darcy and agreeing with her about the, an argument with Charlotte and agreeing with her in an argument with Wiver. And then the proposal happens and then the letter and then her thinking like this. And this is the turning point where you realize in real time with Lizzie that she is an unreliable narrator. And that she has been leading you astray with her interpretations of events. That she does not know what she's talking about. That she's been wrong. That the narrator, as speaking through Lizzie's head, has been wrong. And you have to re-examine events that happened before with Lizzie. And you have to go back and say that, oh, you know, Charlotte might have been right then. And you have to go back and look at, like, what Wickham said and... The first time I was reading through the book, I didn't catch that what Wickham was saying was weird or that it was odd that he was having this conversation with her. But then she points it out in this chapter and you're like, yeah, that is odd. That is weird. That is, it doesn't sound right. That does seem, you know, impolite and wrong. And so I think that this chapter, even though, like I said, there's very little actually happening. It's all just in Lizzie's head, but it's a huge turning point of her thoughts and of her head. <laughs> Um, of realizing that she did not interpret things correctly and having to reinterpret her life at this new point at this time. So I think that that's a really interesting and cool thing to kind of watch happen in real time. I really like it. I really enjoy this chapter and I really enjoy this, this last part of the book where we're getting to be in the new Lizzie's head that is not quite as quick to judge. Um, because the title, Pride and Prejudice, I think we're supposed to see Darcy as proud and Lizzie as prejudiced. I think that's the easy, quick reading of it. But I think they're both proud and prejudiced, right? Lizzie is also, she says, her vanity. It's her vanity and pride. Um, pride in herself, vanity in her own capabilities. That leads her to being so wrong and being an untrustworthy narrator. And that is what we're getting here from her. And we're seeing something that I don't think we often see, or at least I can't think of many examples of. We watch an unreliable narrator realize that they are an unreliable narrator in real time. 
And that is what we get in this in this chapter. We get Lizzie realizing that she is an unreliable narrator. And it's fabulous. I love it a lot. Um, and yeah, that's the end of this chapter. So now they are gone. The men, Colonel Fitzwilliam and Darcy, have left town. And she's left with just Mr. Collins and Charlotte and Mariah. And Lady Catherine and Anne. Um, but... Nobody except for Charlotte she really wants to talk to. Um, so that is where we're at. I'll be back next time with chapter 14. See you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs>